You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. This message is from our series on Romans, presented by Justin Hibbard. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority that which God has, except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what's right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoers. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone that what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. About a couple of months ago, my family and I, we took a trip to Williamsburg, Virginia. If you ever had the chance to go to Williamsburg, it's kind of neat. It's this sort of little time capsule. They call it the Revolutionary City and live life during the eight, like, like it's the 18th century. Well, plus air conditioning, which was really important that week that we were there. And, um, and you get the impression of what, what life must have been like. They, they kind of simulate some of the conversations that happened on the street and bring out the different characters like Arnold, or Arnold, uh, the, like Benedict Arnold and, um, and Thomas Jefferson and some of these others and Paul Revere. And you, you get a sense of what life was like during that time leading up to the American Revolution. The American, uh, the American Revolution happened and, and, and it was, there was a lot of conversation about it. I was actually surprised. I thought that most people were for the American Revolution, but it comes to find out only a third sided with the Patriots to revolt against England. A third sided with the Loyalists to, with the Crown, and a third just stayed neutral about it. And at the core of their conversation, the core of the debate, because they were a Christian society, was this chapter that we just read, or this portion, Romans 13. Understanding that they were citizens of heaven and citizens of earth, and understanding sort of the dichotomy that happens, and what should they do. To appreciate the dilemma that they were in, it helps a little bit to understand uh, the English governing system. You see, the English have a monarch, and that monarch is not elected by the people. It is crowned by the Church of England, by the Archbishop of Canterbury. So it's the Archbishop of Canterbury in this, in a sense of God has given this crown to this individual to reign. So upsetting that order, upsetting that hierarchy, not only is upsetting the government, it's also, in their eyes, upsetting the order that God has established. I remember in English class with uh, Loris, she would, she would pull out this poster as we're studying some of the English works, especially Shakespeare. And uh, at the top was, the, was God and then the king of England and so forth. And they understand this hierarchy. And if you've ever read some of the tragedies like King Lear and Macbeth and Hamlet, you understand that they're tragedies because the king is being removed from his position in a way that violates the order that they, that they all understood. 
It's as Daniel Leonard, a Massachusetts, a Massachusetts loyalist, said, when government is destroyed, whether by men who love liberty or by men who do not, there are no laws to protect the weak against the powerful or the good against the wicked. But the people of the time during the American Revolution looked at what was happening, looked at scenes like the Boston Massacre, and said, this is not government. This is different than government. This is terror. This is tyranny. And it's as John Locke said, tyranny is the exercise of power beyond right, which nobody can have a right to. So you had the loyalists on one side saying, it is not right for us to overthrow our ties with the government because the government has been established by God. And then you have the patriots who said, this is not the government established by God. This is a government that is usurping the authority and the privilege that God has given them. This is the definition of tyranny. So were they right or were they wrong? Who was right? Well, when you do a cursory reading of Romans chapter 13, it seems like what Paul is saying is obey the government. Unequivocally, always obey the government. Furthermore, the, the idea of a, a tyrannical leader, I mean, who was in power when, when Paul's writing this letter? Well, Nero's in power. He was an awful emperor. He was terrible to the Christians. He persecuted Christians. In fact, the ten emperors of Rome, the ten kings, which I think is, is talked about in, in Revelation, these were ten awful emperors that persecuted Christians left and right, fed them to lions and gladiators, and um, burned them at the stake. And so Paul is writing this even though there is a tyrannical leader in place. But at the same time, who is writing this letter? Well, Paul, Saul of Tarsus. Paul was someone who often did the opposite of what his government wanted him to do. When the Jewish leaders told him not to preach the gospel, in fact, go arrest citizens, he has this amazing conversion experience on the road to Damascus, and he begins doing the opposite of what the, the people at the, the Sanhedrin empowered him to do. He preaches the gospel. He's thrown in jail. His life is threatened. He's thrown in jail. He escapes out of prison. This is a guy who, who said, you know what? I'm going to serve God even if it's illegal, even if my government tells me not to. So how do we understand the, the, the balance here that Paul is trying to tell us in Romans chapter 13? And it helps, I think, if we look at the life of Jesus. So we're going to look at a couple of instances in Jesus' life where he says something in a way that is very profound. And we're going to look in Matthew chapter 22. And you're probably familiar with this story about Jesus and the tax. In Matthew 22, beginning in verse 15, we read this. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. So tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. And he asked them, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God. And when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Helps to understand a little bit of the context of the story. You see, around the time of Jesus' birth, there was a tax. We read about it in Luke 2, 
a tax, an imperial tax, and everyone had to be counted. Why do they have to be counted? Because this was a different tax than what than buying or selling or um, owing possessions and paying taxes on it. This was a head tax. Everyone was taxed based on existence, and it was very unpopular with the Jews. And so around, uh, around the time of Jesus' birth, maybe when Jesus was a little bit younger, about 25 years before Matthew 22, there arose a man named Judas the Galilean. And Judas the Galilean, he opposed the head tax. And he began, he's credited with co-starting the fourth sect of Judaism called the Zealots. Now, you might have heard about a book recently that came out called, you know, Jesus the Zealot. Jesus was not a zealot. Zealots were people that wanted to overthrow the Roman Empire. And Jesus associated with some of them. Some of them were, were his own disciples. But um, along with the zealots, you have the Pharisees, you have the Sadducees, you have the Essenes. So the fourth sect is the, the zealots. But Judas was a revolutionary. He wanted to start a revolt. He, ta- he started telling people, don't pay that tax. Don't pay that head tax to Caesar, to the Roman government. He even cleansed the temple. And then he and his movement were crushed by the Romans around 6 AD. So fast forward this now about 25 years later to Jesus. He's just cleansed the temple. He's talking about the kingdom of God and now people are starting to ask questions. And leading these questions, leading this entrapment, you know, sort of like how how the media sometimes tries to trap politicians trying to pin them down on one side or the other are the Pharisees and the Herodians. And the Pharisees had this kind of love-hate relationship with the Roman Empire. The Romans allowed them to lead and the Pharisees, you know, taught the people and, you know, just kind of played nice together. The Herodians liked the government, followers of Herod. They liked having the government because the government provided them roads and provided water and provided a system of stability. And the question that they're asking, I'm sure you've heard sermons about this, the question they're asking isn't just about the tax. They're trying to trap him. They want to know something. They want to know, Jesus, are you a revolutionary? Are you a revolutionary? Are you one that's going to revolt against the government? They want to pin him down on one camp or the other. You know why? Because here's the, here's the trap part. Because if they can say, Jesus is a revolutionary, well, you know, he's just embarrassed the temple. He's embarrassed a lot of people. And if, he, if they can get him to say, Yes, I'm a revolutionary. Don't pay your tax. Now they can, they can go to the Romans and say, this guy is really stirring up trouble. Just like Judas the Galilean, you ought to do something with him. And Jesus would be crushed. But on the other hand, if Jesus says, no, no, I'm not a revolutionary. Uh, I, I think you should pay your taxes. Then they can go back to the people and say, this guy is nothing. He's not really a Messiah. He's not really a king. He just wants the same old, same old with Rome in charge. So Jesus does something extraordinary, something brilliant. And he says, show me the coin used for paying the tax. And we've seen these coins before. These are denariuses. They've been found by archaeologists. And on the coin is a picture of Caesar. And inscribed around the coin is Caesar, priest, king, son of the gods. So you have this ironic moment where Jesus says, whose image, literally, whose icon, iconos, whose image is this, whose inscription, and it's Caesar's. Whose coin is this? Well, it's Caesar's, because Caesar minted this coin out of his own wealth. So, so here, here's this, this ironic image of Jesus, the prophet, the priest, the king, son of the God, son of God, holding up a coin that says Caesar, priest, king, son of the gods, right? And he says, whose is this? And they answer, it's Caesar's. 
So he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God. But there's something else here. When the Pharisees ask the question, or the Pharisees and the Herodians, they ask it in a sense, they use this word didomi, which means to give as a gift. I think they came about this with this kind of frame of mind. They said, you know, we know that God's in charge. We know that that God's kingdom rules and that earthly kingdoms, just like as Romans 13 says, earthly kingdoms are really subservient to God's kingdom. He's, God has established the order. So in a sense, when we pay taxes, our, we're kind of just giving this gift to Caesar and just sort of humoring him, right? So should we give this gift? Should we give this tribute to Caesar? And Jesus turns the verb around on them. He uses the word apodidomy, which means to pay a debt. He doesn't say give a gift to Caesar. He says pay Caesar what you owe him. In fact, in Romans 13, this is the same word that Paul uses when he says, if you owe taxes, then pay taxes. If you owe revenue, then pay revenue. If you owe honor, then pay honor. What he's saying is, if you owe this, give it to him. But the flip side of this is, if you don't owe him something, don't give it to him. So Jesus was a revolutionary, but not like a revolutionary that we would think. Jesus was a revolutionary of revolutionaries. And what he's saying is, you know, Caesar, Caesar wanted more than taxes. Caesar wanted absolute authority. Caesar wanted the souls, the hearts of people. He wanted total obedience. That's what Caesar wanted. But whose is that? That's God's. God deserves the allegiance in the heart of man, not Caesar. And so what he's saying is, you give to Caesar what you owe Caesar. That's his coin. He minted it out of his wealth. That's his. That's his inscription. That's his, that's his icon there. That's his. But... You give to God what you owe God. Jesus refuses to play the game. He refuses to be pinned down in one camp or the other. He gives this extraordinary answer. That's, it's unbelievable. But here's the other thing about Jesus. When he, when, he, when he does this illustration, does he pull out a coin from his pocket? No, he has to ask for a coin. When, when the, he goes to the temple, he has to pay the temple tax, right? But what, is, what does he do? He tells Peter, you're going to find the temple tax in a fish's mouth. He doesn't have a coin. He is the king without a crown. He's the backwards king. He's the king without a crown. He's a king without a quarter. He's a king without a home. He is the backwards king. Jesus refuses to play the game. You see, he says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. And, you know, Jesus strikes this balance that I just fail to strike on so, so many times and so many levels. Jesus is able to love the sinner and hate the sin. And, and don't we find ourselves, we, we find ourselves loving the sinner so much that we begin to accept the sin or we hate the sin so much we begin to reject the sinner. Jesus is able to find this perfect balance and he does it here as well. Jesus lives in the world but not of the world. He's not like the Essenes. Who, who say enough with this Roman government and they head to the hills and they hide in caves like this. Jesus stays in the city. He stays in Jerusalem. He stays around Israel. He teaches the gospel. He heals the sick. He engages with the world around him. So even though he, he's at odds with the fundamental principles of the Roman Empire, especially this prophet, priest, king, son of the gods that Caesar claims to be, he doesn't run away from it. But at the same time, he doesn't, he doesn't become part of the system. He never owns a thing. He doesn't own anything. You know, that's the thing about debt sometimes that, 
uh, as Ralph Waldo Emerson says, is that a man in debt is so far a slave. And I feel that. I feel, I feel that sometimes when, when, when I say, okay, God, what do you want me to do? And then it's answered by, well, it has to be this, this, or this, because if it's not, then I can't afford to pay for the stuff that I have, right? And Jesus says, well, you know what? I don't have to pay taxes if I don't own anything. And I don't have to be saddled down trying to, to do this or that or the other if I don't own anything either. And I, it's just been so convicting of me, on me that, wow, look at, look at the way that Jesus lived. And, and look what Paul says. Don't owe, don't, don't leave any outstanding debt with anyone except love. For this very reason. Because if you owe somebody something, you're a slave to them. And Jesus, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't owe anything to anyone. He doesn't side with a political camp. He doesn't play the political game. He doesn't do what everyone else in his society does. He, he says, I'll live in the world, but I'm not gonna live, I'm not gonna live of the world. I'm gonna be fundamentally different. I'll be a revolutionary. I'm not gonna revolt. I'm not gonna bring a violent revolt against, against the government. But I'm gonna live differently. Jesus refuses three things, and I'm borrowing this, a lot of this sermon from a great sermon by Tim Keller, um, called Arguing About Politics. And also R.C. Sproul has another one that's really good about understanding Romans 13 and, and our relationship with the government. And I encourage you to take a look at that, but most of this is just plagiarized from them. <laughs> I cited it, it's not plagiarized anymore. All right. Um, Jesus refuses three things, as Tim Keller says. He refuses political primacy. He refuses political complacency, and he refuses political simplicity. He refuses political primacy, he refuses political complacency, he refuses political simplicity. You know, he refuses political primacy in that when, when Peter rises up to strike the servant who's coming to arrest Jesus, Jesus tells him, he says, put away your sword, Peter, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. The idea that that a political problem could be solved by creating another political problem is not what Jesus has in mind. If you would have asked me a few months back what I thought about what was happening in Egypt and Syria and in Turkey and some of these revolts, I would have said, yes, good for these people to rise up against tyranny, right? Good for them. As we read in the, in the Declaration of Independence that says, we know that it's easier for people to suffer the pain than to rise up and solve the problem. Well, sort of like that. More eloquent, more eloquent than that. But notice what's happening. In these revolutions, they're becoming terrible. They're becoming awful. People, innocent people are dying. Innocent bystanders are dying bystanders are dying, and it's exactly like what that Massachusetts loyalist said, that in the destruction of government, there's a destruction of, uh, of order to protect what's right and what's good. And even in the American Revolution, you know, we look at it, we say, well, good for our American Revolution, because if it wasn't for the American Revolution, we would still have, we would still have tyranny, and we would have suppression of, of speech and thought and, th- and this and that, and, and the revolution... Fr- brought about a freedom of ideas. Well, that's sort of true. Because in the revolution, you know, there were a ton of loyalists that emigrated to Canada to flee for their lives. There was a, there, in some states, it was illegal for pastors to pray for the Church of England, or for the King of England. 
So even though we say, oh, there's a freedom of speech and a freedom of religion and so forth, what ends up happening in political revolts, and Jesus understood this, is that it's just one party suppressing another party. So no matter when we disagree, you know, when, whenever we disagree with things, it's just, it's just one idea becoming more prevalent than another idea. Jesus also refuses and rejects political complacency. There's a story about Herod. This is supposed to be Herod. Um, there's a story about Herod uh, Agrippa in Acts chapter 12. Herod, Herod was the grandson of Herod the Great. He was the nephew of the Herod that was in power at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. This Herod was a Herod that grew up among the Jews. And he was very sympathetic towards the Jews, and the Jews loved him. There's a story about him and his entourage crossing, going down the road, and they came to an intersection with a bridal procession. And instead, what was supposed to happen was the bridal procession was supposed to stop for this Herod and his entourage. But instead, he, he said, go ahead. And this was the type of king that he was. When he minted coins, he didn't mint things that were offensive to the Jewish people. So you can understand the Jews, the Jews started to really like this guy. Well, one day, and we read about this in Acts chapter 12, Josephus talks about this as well, Herod throws this big party for, for the emperor Caligula, this, this big celebration for him in his honor. And Caligula was an awful man, a very uh, vile, vile emperor. And, and the people, and, he, and Herod puts on this, this silver suit, and he walks out in a silver suit, and it says the sun, like, shone off of it, and it was brilliant. And people began chanting, you're more than a mortal. Think about that for just a second. Here was the backwards king, the king without a crown, the king, with, the king that said, My, I have come to heal this world, and people yelled, crucify him. And now here's Herod, who's wearing this bright armor he's he's made good with the people the jewish people in fact he loved that he's he is responsible for killing the first apostle and he has peter put in the jail and because he realizes how popular this is with the jewish people and so now the people say you're more than a mortal he uh he becomes very ill at that moment he ends up dying just a few days later and um but it's a it's a reminder of political complacency because you know what you know what's what what I find just kind of fascinating about sort of elections and political parties is that we sort of side with one even though we may not totally agree with one. But what ends up happening oftentimes is sort of like the Super Bowl. You ever you ever watch the Super Bowl and your team's not in it, right? And and the two weeks leading up to the Super Bowl, you find yourself cheering for a team that you never thought you'd cheer for before. Go Kansas City Chiefs, right? <laughs> Go Tampa Bay Bucks, right? But because they're the only two teams left, you got to choose one of them, right? You can't be like, "Go my team," and everyone's like, "Well, your team's not in the Super Bowl. Better luck next year," right? Right? When that's what happens with political parties, you get to the the final election. You've got two guys. You might not have been the guy. You've trashed this guy before, right? Like all the other can all the other candidates have. But now he's the only guy left, and you're like, "He's awesome." I love him. He's the best thing ever. Well, what happened? And and we, you know, we do. It's politics, and it's silly sometimes. But but what becomes 
problematic isn't that we vote for a guy or that we vote for a party or that we vote party lines or whatever party you want. It's when our morals become complacent due to what our party is telling us. It's when we get our, our morals and our ideas of what's right and wrong and what's truthful from our political party and not from the Lord. I would, and I, I'm going to use this as an illustration. I, you know, I don't know if I should, but I, I will anyways. Um, <laughs> because it is political, it's controversial, but you know, in the last election, this is what bothered me. And I, I, I totally respect Billy Graham. I totally respect his ministry. I totally respect what he's saying about voting biblical values. I think it's great. Yes, vote the Bible. Vote biblical values. But here's the thing. You know, I know that his organization took Mormons off the list of cults when, when, when uh, Mitt Romney was running for election. Again, vote Republican, vote for a Mormon. Don't vote for a Mormon. Don't vote Republican. Vote whoever you want. But here was the problem, is that I saw the complacency happening. That I was, instead of, instead of saying, I'm voting for this person based on, he, I like his party stance, I like him as a person, I think he's going to bring the best thing for the country, it became about voting biblical values. And I, and I thought to myself, well, what does the Bible talk about more? Does it talk about abortion and gay marriage as much as it talks about who God is and the Trinity of God and all of these other all of these other conflict uh, concepts that conflict with what the candidate stood for on a personal level? We have to be very careful, and I and I, I say just be careful about letting your politics influence what you think is true. In what is right, right? We, you know, we talk about immigration a lot, and I've worked with a number of pastors who came to this country illegally at one point or another. And a lot of people, and I understand people's position on both sides uh, about the issue. But then, in this church, you know, we support illegal immigration. Not here in the United States, we support it with our missionaries, don't we? We send our missionaries to countries knowing what they're going to do is to evangelize, right? Knowing what they're going to do is to preach the gospel in a place where that's fundamentally illegal. We're encouraging them to break the law, right? Knowing that there are severe consequences for them to do it. So Jesus rejects political complacency. Jesus also rejects political simplicity. You know, the idea that there is the separation between the church and the state. I understand, I understand this. But we, what you need to understand is that when, it, when they use the word state, they did not use the word religion. It is not the separate. No one can separate themselves from their religious worldview, and everybody has a worldview, whether you're religious or are religious. In fact, saying that I, I'm not going to have a religious worldview when I talk about politics is in, it, in and of itself a religious worldview. So you can't say that I, I separate myself from my religion. It's just, it, it, it's, it's insane is what it is. But, Jesus doesn't separate himself from his worldview. He always comes into political situations with his worldview on, and we'll see in just a moment. You know, the other thing, too, is that this idea of the separation of church and state was not an idea that existed for a long time. It came about during the Enlightenment with, a guy, with guys like Immanuel Kant and, and uh, John Locke. These were ideas from that time, and Thomas Jefferson, of course, one that was very outspoken about the idea of the separation of church and state. But George Washington said on his 
in his farewell address, he said, and let us, with caution, indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Whatever may be connected to the influence of refined educational minds of, po- of peculiar structure, reason, and experience both forbid us to expect the nat- that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. George Washington understood that you can't have a, a, a stable government that says we are going to be for morality if there is no worldview beneath it. I want you to take a look at a scene here from the Passion of the Christ. This is with Jesus and Pilate, and I think this is very telling of Jesus and his politics. Jesus in here tells us that, that, that the kingdom of God is above and over this world, as Kateri read earlier, that the government rests on his shoulders. Whereas Pilate tried to threaten Jesus by saying, don't you know I have the power over your life? Jesus tells him, other kingdoms only rule as his kingdom allows. God only allows what he will allow. And then you have that that telling phrase where Pilate says, qui es veritas, what is truth, right? And Jesus says, he, he, t- he talks about what he is. His kingdom is based on truth. So whereas the politics of the world are focused on, they're focused on the here and the now, solving whatever immediate problem exists, carrying out authority, and oftentimes not based on truth, but rather based on opinion, based on, on, on popularity, based on whatever will get them elected. Jesus says he's the, he's the backwards king. He's the king who says, you know what? I'm here to carry out the kingdom of God, even if that's my death. What other king does political suicide like that, right? Jesus does the opposite. So you say, well, I'm walking away from here with an understanding of what Jesus' politics are, but what does this mean for me? Because I pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I want to know, what does that mean for my life? And here's my answer. I've got no idea. (laughs) But to say this, as a pastor, I, I realize I'm often in a very perilous predicament. I'm in a, in a difficult spot uh, because I feel a pressure. I, I, I come to you. I'm not a Republican. I'm not Democrat. I'm not even a Libertarian. And, and I understand that already that puts me at odds with probably 95% of what your politics are. And I try as much as possible to avoid talking about politics from the pulpit and in our newsletters and things like that. And I know some pastors do that, and that's their thing and whatever. And I try not to. I try, I try to distance myself. But at the same time, those of you who know me know that I have very strong political opinions and very strong political feelings. And it's hard. It's not, you know, I don't think we should go around and sort of necessarily hide exactly how we feel. But at the same time, I understand that my feelings sometimes are, are, are very strong about what I feel about our politics. And, you know, in preparing for this message, I will say that I came, I came at it thinking that the message would be one way and left with a very different message. In fact, I don't know that I've ever prepared for a sermon as long and as hard as this one and that my heart has ever changed as much as in preparing for this message. As I began to see how Jesus moved in his life and how he, his politics and how the kingdom came first to him, I thought, wow, this is, this, this is something I need to embrace in a much more profound way. But you say, okay, well, 
this is great. I, I'm walking away with a lot of theoretical stuff, but I want concrete stuff. So what should I do if there's a guy like Hitler again, right? He's our prime example. What if Hitler comes to power again? What should I do? Should I, should I just obey him because Romans 13 says to obey him? Should I, should I do like what Dietrich Bonhoeffer did and, 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 and participate in a plot to overthrow him? Even though Dietrich Bonhoeffer was found out and was executed? What should I do? How should I behave? I, I, and listen, I don't envy anyone who, who lived in the Nazi, in not, in the Nazi controlled territories. I certainly don't. Because they had quite the dilemma. But I want you to look at Romans 13 again. Because what's the first word, the second word that he uses here? Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. So as much as we read this as, as thinking about that Paul is writing to us, and yes, he is writing to us, he is talking to everyone. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Well, what is what God has established first? Has God established the local countries first, or God has established his kingdom first and above all? Well, it's his kingdom. So those who rebel against what God has established will bring judgment on themselves, right? And when you think about Nazi Germany, and you realize, and, and, and look what else it says. It says, look, do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? At the end of Hitler's right, life, he was running. He was running because pe- the world was chasing him. The world was hunt, hunting him down because he was doing not right, but wrong. He was doing evil. And in the end, nobody needed to pull the trigger. Hitler did it himself. So, well, then, then how are we supposed to respond to this? Well, there are a number of people who, in their homes, like in Corrie ten Boom's home, who created a place, a refuge, for the Jewish people to hide. And she and others put their lives at danger to disobey the government. But, you know, I don't think they were disobeying the government for the right to, for the, just to make a point. I, I don't think they were saying, you know what, they're, they're Jews, and I hate Hitler, so, and I hate what he's doing, so I'm going to hide the Jews just to spit on his face. No. Because in, in Romans chapter 12, what does it say? In verse 17, 21, Carl talked about this. Do not repay anyone for evil, but do, and do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, in our lives, we're going to come across times where our government is going to do something that we think is wrong. They're going to do something that we think is short-sighted, that uh, we don't see why they're doing it the way they're doing it, and we might really disagree. Our government's going to fail at certain things. It's going to fail, and, and when you look at Jesus' life, his government didn't have social programs to help the weak and the sick and the poor and the paralyzed. So Jesus did something about it, right? And we always have an opportunity. We can always say, hey, we can do what's right, or we can go along with the government. Carlene and I, we, we took a date about a month ago to the Holocaust Museum. I know, not your typical date choice. <laughs> What a, and what a tremendous place that is. I mean, the museum is so well done, and it's so horrific, and it's, it, it is heart-wrenching. But it is, it is a beautiful tribute to everything that happened. And I was struck by one person. Uh, it was a, a Holocaust survivor's testimony. And she talked about the, the worst moment for her was when they were taken from their homes. And there in her home, on the stairway, were all her neighbors. Not to say goodbye, but to loot their property when they left. This, people stood to gain by following the government. They stood to gain uh, prestige, power, wealth, 
by going along with what the government said, even though in, the, in their heart they knew what was wrong. They knew it was wrong, but they thought, you know what? I, it, it's my life at risk. It's my life at risk if I, if I stand up and do what's right. But here's the thing. You know, the Nazi party didn't last for very long, not even two decades. The Nazi party was in, it was out, and that was over. But the shame that these people had to live with once they realized they were brainwashed and woke up from it lasts forever. Their entire lives, every time they hear the word Holocaust, now that's what they have to think about. I did nothing, or I went along with this, or I turned my neighbor in, and now they're dead. But those who did right, their legacy lasts forever. That's God's kingdom at work. God's kingdom is not a kingdom that lasts just for a moment. It's not about one administration that lasts for a few years. His kingdom and what's right and what's truth lasts forever. So at the Holocaust Museum, there is this, at the end, there's kind of this whole thing about those who resisted and those who saved the Jews' lives. And there's write-ups about Oscar Schindler and some of the others and Corey Ten Boom and uh, priests and nuns and many others who, who did what was right. And you know what? That's what they're remembered for. That's what they're remembered for. Because they said, this is evil, and we're going to overcome evil with good. So I, I think the bottom line in, in looking at Romans chapter 13 is look at Jesus' life. Look, how he, look what he did. He, he refused to play the game that the world played. He, refused, he was in the world. He engaged with the world. He engaged with the politicians, but he refused to play the game that the politicians and that the world wanted to play. He refused to take the sides that were typical of the sides that were being taken, and he was committed to doing what was right, to overcoming all the evil with good. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's New Hope podcast. Chapel's Located podcast. in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.